Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Jan Martel talks about crossing the borders between languages and genres and religions. And more, today on Rewrite Radio. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. My name is Chad Engbers, and I teach in the English department at Calvin College. In this session of Rewrite Radio, we listen back to a conversation with writer Jan Martel from Festival 2008. Interviewed by Otto Sellis, a French professor and poet, Martel lets us into the stories behind his stories, the quirks of his freewheeling curiosity, and the ideas at play in his art and mind. Jan Martel is the author of four novels, The Life of Pi, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2002, as well as The High Mountains of Portugal, Beatrice and Virgil, and Self. He has also published a book of short stories, The Facts Behind the Helsinki Rocamatios, and the collection 101 Letters to a Prime Minister, which address Canada's former Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. In addition to the Man Booker, Martel has received the Hugh McLennan Prize for Fiction and the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and his work has appeared repeatedly on the New York Times bestseller list. His fictions have been translated into many world languages, as well as adapted for the screen and the stage. Born in Spain, Martel now lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where he continues to write and also teaches at the University of Saskatchewan. And now, Jan Martel, interviewed by Otto Salas at the 2008 Festival of Faith and Writing. Welcome, everyone, to this uh, afternoon session, a conversation with Jan Martel. My name is Otto Salas. I teach here in the French department at Calvin College. I also serve on the faculty steering committee of the festival, and every time after a festival, the the committee gets together to discuss authors we would like to invite. And uh, it was for before the 2006 festival, Jan Martel was one of the first names that came up. He couldn't make it. We tried again, and we were very glad that he could come. Last night, we enjoyed a, a really great presentation on Life of Pi, on the reasons behind writing it, and also uh, uh, Jan gave a reading of the text, a way of interpreting the two narratives in the uh, novel. Tonight I'd like to uh, talk with Jan a bit around that novel, to talk about his earlier works and also his current work. Uh, A new novel is coming out in the fall, I'd like to talk about that a bit. Fall of Nine. Fall of Nine, okay. All right, we'll talk about that a bit, and we'll also talk a little bit about Pi. You mentioned last night that you uh, started writing when you were an undergrad at Trent University, mm-hmm. and uh, you were a bit tired of the academic work, and you started writing plays. And I read that your first piece of writing was a play about a young man who falls in love with a door. I'll say it again. A young man who falls in love with a door. Can you, can you tell me about that work? Well, a friend of the family commented by saying, I hope it's not autobiographical. <laughs> um, well, what can I say? It was, a, it was dreadful. It was a one-act play. Um, it was abysmal. Uh, but what happens? A man a, enters, well, he opens the door. A young man falls in love with the door. A friend discovers this, destroys the door. Our hero commits suicide. 
It was that bad. Uh, and I, I thought it was very earnest, and I thought it was quite brilliant, of course. And uh, people took it ironically and uh, thought it was a comedy, a parody, and I said, no, it's quite serious. Isn't it tragic? <laughs> Not open and shut, then. <laughs> oh, okay. That's as bad as the play. <laughs> I try. Um, well, moving on from that one, um, you went on to write more plays uh, and then moved into short stories. Why, why? I know I understand picking a short story. You talked about being an apprentice. It makes a lot of sense, but then why not poetry, which is even shorter? You come, your father's a poet, a well-known poet, mm-hmm. won the Governor General's Award. Uh, why um, not go that direction? I think each writer discovers um, the medium that, is, that he or she is most comfortable with. I, um, the reason I wrote a play, actually, has to do with the movie. If you remember um, an old movie called Reds, do you remember Reds with, with and by Warren Beatty about John Reed, who wrote Ten Days That Shook the World, which was about the October Revolution? So he was... Um, Uh, an American communist, a rare breed, American communist who was in Russia during the October Revolution. And Beattie did this movie called Reds about his life. And those of you who've seen it will remember John Reed... That was his name, right? Yeah, it was John Reed. John Reed knew Eugene O'Neill. And when that movie came out, I happened to have been reading some plays of Eugene O'Neill, a whole slew of plays. I'd taken a summer theater course. I'd read a whole slew of, of uh, O'Neill's play. And this movie comes out. And in the movie, um, O'Neill is played by Jack Nicholson. This is ages ago, 20 years ago. So a young, incredibly charismatic Jack Nicholson. And there's one scene in the play where um, Diane Keaton plays, I think she played John Reed's partner. And she was a bad actress, not Diane Keaton, the role she was playing. And she was in one of O'Neill's early plays. And there's one scene when um, he's in his hotel room, and I think Keaton comes in, and he berates her on her acting. And, but there was this, before they speak, he's sitting at the table and writing. And I was suddenly struck. It was the first time I'd seen a writer, a portrayal of a writer creating. And I was just struck at how uh, banal it was. You just sit and you write. And so I left that movie thinking, I wonder if I could write a play. And I thought of a play because it was O'Neill. If it had been you know, Hemingway, I might have tried to write a short story. So I thought I'd write a, a play. Part of the attraction I find about plays is that as soon as you say the word a play, in people's minds, there's a stage, like here. So you evacuate every other extraneous detail except for a, a blank stage and characters who speak, which in a sense is very much like life. Um, so I found that attractive. So I wrote this abysmal play. Then I wrote another absurdist pastiche. And the reason they were terrible is I've found and still find that moving plot through dialogue is very, very difficult. People have a knack for it, and others don't. You don't have the help of prose to explain, to, to describe. Everything has to go through dialogue. And it has to be dialogue that doesn't... It has to sound like natural dialogue most times. But in fact, it's completely unnatural in the sense that you have to convey information about the characters in a very natural way. So I couldn't say, Otto, who was a professor at Calvin, good to see you. Good to see you. you know, that would be, so you have to convey essential information in a very natural Sorry. way. There has to be tension that is increasing until there's some climax, and it has to go back down. So you have to have this seesaw. It's extra- I find it extraordinarily difficult. So my plays were clunkers, and so I switched to uh, short stories um, because prose seemed easier to wield with, and short stories because they're short. And poetry? I've never... I guess I like rules. I like form. And I find there are no rules to poetry. Um, and that puzzles me. Like, it's very, it's very hard. It's very easy to see this, to say, this is a short story, this is a novel. Right. Yes. Whereas this is a poem. It's very hard to decide what is a poem. And that is to poetry's credit. And that's one of its... But I never felt comfortable doing outright poetry. And also, when you study English lit at university, which I did, I did a major in philosophy and a minor in English, I think academia does the most disservice to poetry. Because mm. novels you can still just enjoy. Even if you don't get half of the alleged symbolism or whatever, you can still enjoy it. Whereas poetry is the one that I think you are felt to feel the dumbest 
if you don't get it. Um, and some poetry is completely impenetrable, whereas it's rare that you have novels that are completely impenetrable. That doesn't happen here in the English No, no, no. <laughs> um, so I never was attracted to poetry, although okay. one hopes, of course, that one's work is poetic in some okay. ways. Uh, moving to then on from your initial works to your first book, and I'll try and say, well, I'll try. The Facts Be- Behind the Helsinki Rakamatios. Good. Okay. Great. <laughs> uh, it's a collection of short stories, and I, um, I suppose like many here, I first read Life of Pi, and then went back and read your earlier works when, when they came out in re-editions. And what struck me in reading these is uh, the experimental side to these stories, mm. as in your first play. And uh, just to give an example for those who haven't read it, the last story is about uh, uh, the relationship between a young man and his uh, grandmother, and they're using a special machine to make this fabulous mirror, mm. uh, a handmade mirror. And the mother tends to go on and on and on. And the, the grandson obviously knows all the stories. And uh, so what happens in the text, uh, in, the, in, the, in the short story, is that once the mother gets going, the left-hand column just says, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and on the right are the thoughts of the young man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and things like, like that and how you structured the, the, the title story, different years. Why this, um, why this interest in the experimental, this desire to push fiction? <clears throat> um, it came naturally, I guess. Uh, I guess when you're young and you're starting out, you want to shake the cage. Yeah. You want to try new things. Um, I was re- a lot of the things that I read at university... I mean, I think the, the, the grand era of English language prose was late 19th century Victorian prose and then early 20th century American uh, fiction. You know, uh, we think we've invented everything. You go to the prose, you know, the fiction of the beginning of the 20th century in America. I mean, people like John Dos Passos, uh, uh, Faulkner, I mean, it's amazing what they were doing in a formal way. So I guess I was influenced by that. Um, also, when I started writing, I was living in Paris with my parents, off my parents. Um, and writing in English in a French city, I was working as a security guard to have some money to, to play around. Um, writing in English in a French city um, meant that I was completely isolated. Um, not quite like Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag, but isolated, not having any other writers right. I might have mixed with sort of left on my own. So no one to say right away, oh, that's not what a short story should look like. So I did a lot of experimenting just to sort of, like, I guess when you have an instrument, you know, you get a violin, um, there must be a phase where you just try to every single possible note the Mm -hmm. thing can produce, including the horrible ones, because they're wrong. I guess that's what I was doing. So I wrote a lot of short stories, uh, many of them that don't work, but I was just experimenting. So I went through a stage where I was writing, I wanted to write a series of very, very, very short stories, and they'd be called... uh, Stories in a Rush. No, fic- um, what was it called? Something in a Rush. And it was stories for men and women with no time to waste. And they're going to be under two pages each. All right. And um, those were very experimental. A lot of them, in fact, were little plays that were impossible to stage. Um, so I, I was experimenting a lot. And then you sort of settle in the, the experiments that you think work, and you try to apply them. And I think in Pi, that, that it really worked, having the hundred chapters, the, yeah. the author's note. Oh, there was even more than that initially. Uh, When I first submitted the manuscript, at one point, um, if you remember, Pies in the Pacific in his lifeboat, and they encounter, he and Richard Parker encounter the Frenchman. Well, I wanted to capture what it would be like for two blind people to be trying to to make contact in lifeboats that they couldn't control. So I had the text, the answers and questions, moving on the page and crossing in an X shape. So where are you? I'm here. Are you getting closer? I think I am. And they sort of cross over like this, going beyond the margins. I thought it was mind-blowingly brilliant. My editor said it was terrible. It was poetry. <laughs> it's poetry. And she says, what happens is you're falling out of the store. You're suddenly saying, oh, the author thinks he's really clever here. And that's the, even in, uh, something that's experimental and works, you have to balance carefully between telling the story and not drawing too much attention to the author and, and losing the story. Uh, moving on to your uh, next work, uh, it's entitled Self, 
It came out in 1996. The narrator is born in 1963, studies philosophy at a small university in Ontario, and his Quebecois parents work as Canadian diplomats. Mm. This sounds a lot like you. Mm. Why, why this? And then, then from there, it changes because yes. the narrator <laughs> becomes a woman um, <clears throat> and then becomes a man again. Um, why, why this blending of personal story and fiction? And, and it's been in a lot of, uh, number of sessions here, <clears throat> the question of the, the lines between fiction and memoir. Mm. I, I did that for very clear reasons. Um, <clears throat> the novel self has the appearance of an autobiography, but at its core it's fictional. And what I was trying to do there is turn on its head what often happens with many novels where it looks like fiction, but in fact once you read the author's bio you realize in fact there's a fictional core. So, um, and I think that's, that, that is perfectly valid. There's nothing wrong with telling one's own life story. Um, but it's a reduction, I think, of what fiction can do if we just reduce it to disguised autobiography. Now, some people have fascinating histories. That's fine. Uh, but there's more to fiction than just that, telling your own little tiny story. I think fiction is a grand form where ideas can be discussed and uh, ideas put forward. And, and so I wanted to invert that, have something that feels like an autobiography, right. but at its core it's fictional. And, of course, the fiction itself is the narrative does change sex. sex. He, he's traveling in Portugal, he's backpacking in Portugal, and over the course of, of a few weeks he metamorphosizes into a woman. There's no operation, there's no... Uh, um, he just wa- he slowly wakes up as a woman, and on his 18th birthday is a she. And he's a woman for seven years, the same number of years that Tiresias was a woman in the Greek myth. And then he once again becomes a, a man. And so there I obviously wanted to explore sexual identity right. and also sexual orientation. I was interested in exploring that too. Now, why was I wanting to explore those was a reflection of my own life. Um, in, in, in university, I took Psych 101. Fascinating course to take. And one of the things, we st- one of the things I came upon were these studies where they said, for example, one of the American studies that showed that men interrupt women far more than women interrupt men. I said, ah, interesting. And I happened to notice in the next few days that, sure enough, I was interrupting women more than they were interrupting me. And um, so I sort of woke up to feminism when I got to university. And I was unhappy. No one likes, we don't, remember like Michael Shabon says, you know, he liked to think that he was a nice Jewish boy. We always, we all like to think that we are nice in some way. Um, and And we tend to rationalize away our flaws. So few of us in this room, I think, would openly admit, oh, I'm racist, or I'm sexist, or I'm an anti-Semite. Uh, we'd rationalize away by saying, oh, well, you know, it's complicated, and we'd rationalize it away. At university, I sort of realized, no, wait a second, there are definitely strands of sexism in me. Whereas I don't recognize the strands of homophobia, or of racism, or of anti-Semitism, I could see ways in which I did not see women as equal to men. And that bothered me. It wasn't, I wasn't... Um, as a moral person, I was not interested in uh, thinking lesser of half the planet. So I said, well, how can I cure myself of this um, Well, to be the other? Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, a lesson that I think we can all take in all kinds of circumstances, whether it's Israelis being Palestinians, whites being blacks, uh, etc. So I thought, okay, I'll write this novel where I will become a woman, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll see what difference that makes. So I did, uh, I did some homework. I, like I, I always do a lot of research. So I read a lot of feminist classics, you know, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, uh, uh, Germaine Greer, uh, Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique, Mystique. What's that other academic that was really polemical for a while? Um, the one who said there are no Mozarts for the same reason there are no Jack the Rippers, female Jack the Rippers. Um, Camilla... Depends. Yeah, Camilla Paglia. Uh, um, A whole bunch of books like that, sort of catching up on something that I should have known. Um, And so that was was what launched me on this. And it was a... a... Uh, Tying into, uh, you you just uh, were were talking about how you thought, well, what it would be like to be a woman. And last night you talked about with Pi, you thought, what would it be like to have faith? one thing in going from Pi to, to this work self is I was surprised how in Pi there's really very little mention of sex, even, I, I, maybe if I missed it, there's, within the discussion of the animals, the question of mating doesn't really come up. Uh, you know, Pi, he is married, but we know very little about that. 
in, in Toronto. Why, why this, it seems like a, a huge shift from talking all about, the, the novel is at times quite graphic sexually as well. Oh, it's well. rude and it's crude. <laughs> yeah. um, so to go from pie to this... It, it well, I guess because in each me. book I'm trying to do something different. Uh, to, my approach to fiction is, the reason I write the books that I write is I'm exploring some issue that interests mm-hmm. me. So in the first book I was exploring what stories can be uh, how can you tell stories? In Self, I was interested in exploring sexual identity, sexual orientation identity. In Pi, I was interested in exploring something else, religion, okay. faith. I just wasn't interested in sex. Uh, it's done? Yeah, in a sense, exactly. I've been there, done that. Um, uh, one, one more question about Self, and uh, this ties very closely to my, my own interest in, in French. Um, and the narrator... Uh, the narrator grow, grows up in a uh, French-speaking household, and in the textbook, as in the, the one short story I just spoke about, often the page is divided into French on the left hand and English on the right. And uh, the, the narrator comments about his bilingual upbringing, I quote, English became the language of my exact expression, but it expressed thoughts that somehow have always remained Latin and I guess you meant Latin in the terms of Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, as such, are you a writer who chooses to write in French but in English? Hmm. Um, interesting question. I think my sensibilities are Latin, are Gallic, um, but I've come to write in English. Um, I always went to school in English, uh, even though I speak French with my parents and I spent nine years in France, in Paris. But I always went to school in English. So it's in English that I learned um, how to think most subtly. I feel I'm in control of English. Not all the time, of course. Mastering a language, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, whereas in French, I still sometimes feel that I'm searching for my words. It's in, it's in English that I learned the most precise terms. And... Um, I, I feel I have a certain distance to English, maybe the way Beckett felt he had with French. He wrote initially mm-hmm. in English and you know, switched after, uh, was it Watt, switched to writing directly into French because it gave him a certain distance. I feel, because I didn't grow up in English, I feel I don't have um, gut reactions to it. I didn't grow, for example, I didn't grow up reading the kinds of uh, children's books that you would have read in English. The ones I read were in French. Um, often we'd learn one's, our expressions at home, while the ones I learned were in French, not in English. So I don't feel my English is tainted by um, regionalisms, by personal experience. Mm-hmm. It comes sort of as a, a foreign language, but it just happens to be when I speak better than any other language. So I like that certain distance, that uh, objectivity I feel I have, that, that sort of objective distance I have with English. Um, and also, I, I, like, I love writing in English. It's an incredibly powerful, versatile language, whereas I find French more naturally falls into certain categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's either very formal French or there's, you know, argot, real yes. slang. Um, it's a language that's less resistant to change, I find. I just have to note, you don't have to comment on this, but there's one passage just before the character, as the character is changing, and then uh, it's in French on the one side, English on the other, and it says in French, my identity was linked to the French language. And then I thought, oh, I should read the English, really. And it says, my identity was linked to the English language. Yeah. <laughs> it was a well, great joke for bilingual readers. You know, so. there's, a, there's a Canadian writer named Mavis Gallant, and yeah. once in the 70s she underwent an operation, uh, uh, anesthetic, f- full, what is it called? Full anesthetic. And when she was coming out of it, she was in this haze, and she later on said that she forgot everything about herself, everything. The only things that she knew for certain, first of all, was that she was a woman. She didn't forget mm-hmm. that, and that she was thinking in English. But where she was, her age, what her profession was, what her likes were, all that was all forgotten. There's only two holes to her identity in those hazy first moments after waking up, French and her sexual identity. That just sort of struck me. Moving back to the uh, lecture of last night, uh, you talked about how uh, you started off your lecture saying that it was the first time that you, you, you toured a lot, Life of Pi came out, was a big success. You said to me that you, it, 
the touring and the speaking went on for two years. Mm -hmm. And you said last night that this last night's event was the first time you, you were speaking to an audience with Mexicans. Yes. Meaning people, people had made, for you suspect, the leap of faith. Mm. And that really struck me for having talked to so many different audiences. Um, and I'd just like to read a quote here from a, a novelist who's come here to, uh, to Calvin before. His name is Ron Hansen. And he's written very well uh, about uh, religion in very literary novels. And he said in this uh, recent interview in Image, it used to be you could write about, uh, all that you could write about was God and man. Some think that if you do that now, you're either breaching good taste or you've lost your mind. Mm -hmm. and, and he's talking of, about, the, uh, about the trade publishing market, not about writing for a Catholic press or mm -hmm. Protestant press or Jewish press, but trying to get a literary work out a serious one to a broad public. Um, do you feel, is that your experience with writing about religion for a large audience? Well, Life of Pi was my first attempt, and it was a great success across the board. Uh, but I would say that uh, what Ron Hansen was saying is generally true, but it shouldn't necessarily be surprising. I mean, um, there's, you know, there's a genre of, of gay fiction. Now, I don't know too many straight people who'd care to read gay fiction. Some may be opposed to the gay lifestyle, but some would just be, well, I don't mind it, but I'm just not gay, so I'm not interested in it. Um, same thing with, um, I suppose, you know, Jewish fiction, uh, intensely Jewish fiction, like, you know, uh, um, um, Isaac Becerra Singer or um, S.Y. Agnon, the Israeli writer who's written extensively about uh, the lost Jewish world of Eastern Europe. You know, some people would not necessarily... I remember, for example, another example, William Faulkner... Um, I tired of him after a while because the American South simply didn't interest me. Even though it's a metaphor, of course, it's a very universal metaphor because he's such a great writer. Frankly, the American South meant nothing to me. And so I think people will tend to read things that in some ways speak to them. So uh, people who are not religious or of a different religious persuasion will not be particularly interested in reading uh, Christian fiction. So, for example, the Left Behind series. Uh, I don't know what non-Christian would want to read that. Uh, it wouldn't speak wow. to them. Um, I'll try and hold my tongue. Okay. <laughs> really, they're such good books. Um, you know, uh, there's, uh, fiction is everything under the sun. You can't read everything under the sun. Some things will appeal to you more than others. Yes. Um, so it's not particularly surprising. Um, another thing I'd say to that, to add on, is the secular world has been good to the arts to the extent that the to my mind, the nature of art is not moral, it's testimonial. Art says, uh, to write a work of art, to paint, to do music, is simply to bear witness to life and say, this is life. And the freest art, in that sense, is delivered by a secular world. Um, so you get works of art that are immoral. Um, uh, um, but you also get the ones that happen to be moral too, but in that, it's coincidental. So I'll give an example. Uh, Picasso's Guernica, that amazing mural that Picasso did after the bombing of the town of Guernica by the uh, German uh, uh, Luftwaffe backing the Spanish fascists. So this town was bombed, civilians were killed, absolute outrage, a gratuitous massacre of civilians. He did this absolutely brilliant mural. It's enormous. It's, it's in Spain now. Now, there's a work of art that's uh, mind-blowing in, in its brilliance, and it coincides with a very strong moral point that you should not kill civilians. That's a heinous act. Um, it is not good because it is moral. It is good because it's good. Um, that it coincides with a moral point is just that, a coincidence. Um, where there are works of art, and I'll switch to another example, pop songs. There are many, many pop songs that are just really good pop songs. But if you look at them, the lyrics are very immoral. Uh, doesn't mean they're not good pop songs. So the, co the art and morality we may coincide, but it's not inherent to art. So there is a limitation to Christian fiction, too. As one of the participants in the festival, Dan Taylor, joked to me last night that a lot of you know, Christian fiction, the problem is every time there's a death, there's Jesus in the room. And that constance will sort of limit what you can do with death in the room, you know, when there's death. Um, so if you are Christian and want to write fiction, 
you have to do it in a way that doesn't reduce the scope of your fiction, because otherwise it's reduced to proselytizing, which, as I said, will, will, will appeal very strongly to people who, who like what you're saying, but will, will restrict your appeal in, in, a, in a general way. Am I in trouble for saying all this? Not at all. <laughs> no, I think someone like Hansen is, is really aiming at, uh, you know, he doesn't just provide, this is the answer to it. It's very subtle. Mm. Uh, raises a question more than offering mm. an immediate answer. But moving somewhat uh, related question. Let me just, sorry, I had another yeah. thought. One, this is in a pop song once again. Yeah. Remember Paul Simons, Mrs. Robinson? Yes. I remember reading an interview where Paul Simons said he was very proud of the fact that he could mention Jesus in a song, and it was acceptable. So he said, you know, uh, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. So there's a, a, a nice reference to Jesus in a context that anyone could take. Mm-hmm. A Hindu, a Jew, a secular, an atheist. Love that song, and it's a very moving song. And there's this little religious message um, uh, that is given in a way that's very open and is not judgmental. Sorry. No problem. Um, While talking about uh, a a form of uh, something that is immoral and talking about evil and violence and cruelty in in your works, um, there are times in, in the novel when very terrible, in your novels where very terrible things happen. In self, the main character is raped. It's mm-hmm. a terrible scene. Um, and in Pi, Pi's parents and, and brother die, and it seems like it happens, it's an accident uh, in that case. Uh, and also in self, the main character, uh, his parents die also in an accident. So on the one hand, there are brutal uh, human cruelty, acts of human cruelty, and then so this random bad mm. luck. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing I, I'm, not, I'm not clear of in your writing is where do you see that, that, um, that cruelty coming from? Is, it, is, an, is that just from humans making bad choices? Oh, that's a big question. Um, well, I'll respond just to the question of evil. Um, but to my mind, most art starts out of a sense of injustice, of evil, of cruelty. Now, whether it's moral evil intended by human beings or, in a sense, accidental evil, evil where there's no clear intent, um, that's what is most disturbing. The most disturbing thing I've seen in life, and this is a banality what I'm saying, is evil. Um, evil is profoundly upsetting. Uh, acts of violence... You know, when it's on a newspaper or on the screen, you can get some distance from it. But when you actually witness acts of violence, it is so profoundly disturbing. And I think, um, and we are the ultimate evil, of course. It is one, not necessarily moral evil, is our own death. We must, we, so in a lot of my writing, I'm, tr- I'm trying to slowly come to understanding evil and trying to live with it. Because mm-hmm. I can live with goodness. It's easy to live with good weather and milk and chocolate ice cream and stuff like that. Puppy dogs. Exactly. Now, it's evil that is hard to live with, and yet we have to. But where do you see, here we are at Calvin College, so where where do you see this evil coming from then? Is it from human selfishness, or is it something somehow original? Okay. (laughs) Um, I, I don't see it as original. I see evil as the absence of goodness on the personal level and on the grand theistic level. I don't believe in the devil. I believe in the absence of God. And that absence is willed so that we must make our own decisions for ourselves. So, um, And I think it's in Pi. You talk about the founding principle of I'm quoting, the founding principle of life is love. Right. So then what is the opposite then? Of rejecting that love... Well, the opposite would be the absence of love. And when you love, you know, when you love, to love is not to control. To love is ultimately to let go. So God loves us and lets go and, let, and hopes we come towards him. But if we don't, he'll still be there. But we will wander and get lost in evil ways. Um, and on a personal level, I do believe that evil, there are people who, I mean, talking in the wide range of normal behavior, I'm not talking of, certified psychopaths, people right. who are biochemically deranged and have zero capacity for empathy, you know, the mass murderers of our world. Um, it doesn't apply to that. Those are beyond. Uh, but in that broad range of normal behavior, I do believe that early absence of goodness 
breeds further absence of goodness until a character is set and that character has difficulty doing good, um, which speaks for the incredible importance of you know, early childhood schooling, a, a proper care and stuff like that, a safe home environment, stuff like that. So on a, on a very basic human level, I don't, I mean, I suppose there, just as there are people who are more naturally gregarious and others more shy, I suppose there are individuals who are more naturally good and some more naturally selfish, but those are all susceptible to change and don't really qualify as evil. Grand evil, I think, is the absence of goodness, and as I said, on a theological level, I don't actually believe in an antithetical, antithetical entity to God that incarnates evil. I just believe in the absence of God. Last night you uh, spoke about the life of Pi and, and the two uh, narratives. No, though. Did I do it? You said the life of Pi. That, that was it. just to make you all... <laughs> just watch it. Oh, well, why don't we jump in? Why, why is that so important to you? <clears throat> well, um, to me, life of Pi is about multiplicity. It's about the many yeah. interpretations that one can make of life. And the is a definite article. It implies one life of Pi. So I didn't want that. So I thought I'll use an indefinite article, a life of Pi. That seemed kind of odd, a life of pi. So I'll just dispense with articles and just call it life of pi. Well, thinking of uh, multiplicities, in, uh, in the, the book you, you say, in the book. That's <laughs> 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 no, it. For the rest of the interview, no more yeah. definite articles. <laughs> in book, you talk about... Um, you talk about uh, that the... The narrative with the animals is the better story, and once you accept that better story, so it goes with God, mm. that you can make that leap of faith. Mm. Um, fine. I'm an atheist, agnostic. I'm ready to make that leap. Where do I leap to? Do I go the route of pie and you know, do a mishmash of uh, different religions or... Mm. Uh, I qualify by saying I don't think it's a mishmash. He practices or, three separate religions okay. quite separately. He doesn't mix them. Well, um, <clears throat> well it's from, not for me to say, but I would... Um, well, it's for each person to decide where they make that leap of faith. And why and how they make that leap of faith, I think, will most likely be reflected by their background. In terms of religious leaps of faith, often will, you know, either the choice is to leap towards what is most familiar. So in the West, in the United States, it would most likely be Christianity. But, you know, if you were brought up uh, with, you know, the kinds of Catholic priests that the Pope now is condemning, and rightly so, it's unlikely you want to return to Catholicism. In fact, the most bitterly anti-Catholic people I've met have been former lapsed Catholics. Mm -hmm. uh, there you might therefore go to a more liberal, to one of the, you know, one of the Protestant uh, faiths. Um, but if you can't stand Christianity at all, you know, Buddhism is very popular in the last few decades. Um, I don't know. You know, I think it's a question that each person must uh, answer. I certainly don't believe any... I certainly believe religions are better than cults. But in my heart, I, having spent time in India and in Muslim countries, I cannot in good conscience say to three billion people, you're all wrong. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that yeah. a lot last night. Um, and I really liked how you uh, explained how you started to write the novel, that you were, you were open to discovering the religions and started writing the book thinking what it would be like, as I said already, to be a person of faith. And if I may ask, where, where are you on that journey now? Uh, oh, still on it. Um, you know, the, the success of Life of Pi has unfortunately um, disrupted my, my, my regular religious practice. I was going to church every week. Uh, um, with Pi, I was traveling around so much, it was quite disruptive. So for a couple of years, I wasn't going to church anymore. But now in Saskatoon, um, Alice and I go to church. We, I initially was, being French-Canadian, being Québécois, I'm ethnically, I suppose, a Catholic. Now, my parents, as I said last night, long ago left the church, but still, in the distant background, that's kind of what I should have been familiar with. Um, unfortunately, I... Um, and so, and there's a certain grandeur to Catholicism that I like. It... it has made many mistakes because of that, but there is a grandeur to it that is quite magnificent. There is a, 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 a heartfeltly, is that a word? A, a mass conduct, conducted with real passion is an extraordinarily beautiful thing to behold, to participate in. However, and here I'll maybe get into trouble, Canada, and I'm very proud to say this, is one of four countries in the world that has legalized gay marriage. 
And after that happened in Canada, the Catholic Church were instructed on one given Sunday to preach on how that was an offense against God and that a marriage should only be a union of a man and a woman. And we happened, Alice and I, to be in Vancouver and have gone to a church, and we didn't realize, and the priest delivered that. Now they wrap it up in, in, in terms that do not seem uh, prejudicial and condemnatory, but they are. And I was profoundly offended, so I, I didn't want to go back. So now we go to an Anglican uh, church. Um, so that's my practice. And aside from that organized aspect of it, uh, it's part of my life now. Um, um, the idea that all this makes sense is what I believe. And that um, ultimately, love is the great force blowing through this universe. And in a way, we can understand it all makes sense, including appalling evil, even including the killing of children and stuff like that. We are looking at one tiny portion of the picture. And if we could look at the whole picture, it would suddenly make sense. Now, how that works itself out intellectually, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't care. I, don't, I, I can't understand that great plan because I only have such a small mind. I'd like to move uh, on to your, uh, your current project, which mm-hmm. you finished, and the title uh, you told me is A 20th Century Shirt, not the or <laughs> 20th Century Shirt. Get it right. Um, and uh, it will come out next year, and the topic is the Holocaust. Mm. But what is extremely intriguing is that you will not set it in the, the exact time frame you know, of the 30s and 40s, but that you're pulling it out and telling it in a different format. Is, is it uh, then a type of allegory, a parable? Yeah, I suppose it's, a, it's an allegory. Um, it's two things. It's a novel and it's an essay. So in a sense, it's two books, and they'll be published, if I can overcome the objections of my publisher, uh, in the same book, but back-to-back, upside-down. So what's called a flip book. So here's the novel, you flip it over, here's the essay. So if you flip through it like this, eventually you'll get pages upside-down because you're looking at the other one. And the reason I'm doing that is I'm trying by two different means to explore the same topic, which is the Holocaust. The novel is, once again, we'll be using animals, a monkey and a donkey, but this time anthropomorphized, they'll be speaking English. And in the essay is, is more uh, an essay, a bit of nonfiction where I discuss. And what I'm really interested in is looking at representations of the Holocaust. Because um, I've always been interested in the Holocaust. I'm not Jewish. Um, but when you grow up and you start learning about history, many events fall into place. They're part of the puzzle, and the puzzle starts forming a picture. The Holocaust stands apart as a historical event. You know, you start reading about one war, well, they're all the same. You just change the different characters, the, different, the opponents are different, but it, the dynamic of a war is always the same, um, and that's why they have such banal names, you know, World War I, World War II, and they're anything less interesting than just numbering them. In that learning of history, the Holocaust stands apart. It remains undigested. Um, so it always struck me. It always stayed with me. And not for the obvious political reasons of, you know, it's terrible what was done by the Germans to the Jews. That's fairly obvious. I was more interested when I, as I matured into how do I react to this as an artist? Because the traditional reaction of the artist is to take great evil or to take any historical event and turn it into art. I gave the example of Picasso, Guernica. Obviously, Guernica is not a, rep- is not a direct representation of what happened. It's, you know, it's a very weird-looking painting. It doesn't look at all like what some basement in Guernica might have looked like. It's an artistic representation of it that captures the essence of it. So art has traditionally been very good at that, taking history and giving us a representation that, if it's good, sticks with us and, in a sense, becomes the event. What struck me about the Holocaust is unlike any other historical event so far, it has been represented by a single school of representation, which is historical realism. So most any novel on the Holocaust is not really a novel. It's a very, very thinly disguised piece of nonfiction. So, you know, you read Night by Elie Wiesel, and you read Elie Wiesel's biography at that time, and they coincide. And where they don't, the author gets in trouble. So Elie Wiesel got, you know, there's puzzlement at the fact that the character, I forget this now, but the character is 15, and he was 16 when he got to Auschwitz. So, hmm, why the discrepancy? As if a writer of fiction has to account for details in his work. In the Holocaust fiction, we have to. Uh, and the Holocaust, representations of the Holocaust are overwhelmingly represented by nonfiction. The memoir, the journal, the history of, the chronology, that's how we see the Holocaust. There's nothing wrong with that. 
these, you know, Primo Levi, if this is a man, or Survival in Auschwitz, is an absolutely brilliant book at capturing the atrocity the Germans perpetrated under the Nazis. But my, my concern as an artist is, why is this event so narrowly represented? Even if it's very well represented, is there a problem with representing it so narrowly? Whereas his, another great momentous historical event, war. Wars were represented in any number of ways, right? We have war comedies, war romances, thrillers, in addition to the documentaries. We have the war propagandas. All of those are produced and taken in. And I've never heard of a veterans group complaining of a movie trivializing war. In fact, it's amazing how it's taken 50 years before in cinema we have really accurate representations of war. I'm thinking of Saving Private Ryan by Spielberg with its amazing representation of the landing of D-Day. Up till now, we get, you know, we are, the feed has usually been the John Wayne kind of propaganda, which serves its purpose. Um, it's interesting how war is represented any which way, and we all accept that. And why is that? Because we understand that the various things that we're getting, whether they be poems, movies, plays, novels, are representations, are takes on war. And it's in sifting through all those representations that we get to our sense of what war is like. With the Holocaust, we get only a single kind of representation. And the danger with that is if you stick to only one kind of representation, if any problems appear with that representation, it'll affect its event. Whereas, you know, if a war novel is inaccurate, people say, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, there's other war novels. There's other, you know. If your only representation of an event is flawed, then that's flawing the event itself. I, I know you like uh, Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, is, 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 is that yeah what you're Animal Farm is a good example of someone taking history, transforming it to get its essence. So you have Animal Farm set on a farm, and it's, a, it's an allegory on what Stalin did to Russia. Um, it's a brilliant digesting of history to get its essence, so that you have, with Animal Farm, history in a suitcase. You open up Animal Farm and you get the essence of what happened to Russians under Stalin. You don't need to know Stalin. You don't need to know Russian history. You get to the essence. So a generation of schoolchildren now will understand how an ideal can be perverted. With the Holocaust, we haven't done that. As I said, we have these literal historical representations. We have had nothing else. So we have no Holocaust westerns. We certainly don't have Holocaust comedies. Now, people will say, well, of course not. It's, it's a horrible event. Of course it's a horrible event. So was war. Second World War cost the lives of 22 million soldiers and civilians on the Allied side alone, omitting the Jewish deaths. 22 million. So we're forgetting the Axis deaths. I mean, and, you know, someone who's being blown to bits by a bomb on an individual level suffers as much as anyone can suffer. And yet, as I said, we allow ourselves all kinds of representations with war. So in the essay I'm discussing that, the various representations of, of the Holocaust, uh, the problems with limiting our representations, and in the novel, I'm trying a non-literal representation right. of the Holocaust. So to try to get to its essence without there being the usual suspects of Germans, Jews, mm -hmm. camps, the usual... It's, it's amazing. It's a, I did a lot of research in it, and I gave up. I did less research on this one than I did for uh, Life of Pi, and I, I, I guess I'll have to apologize for what I say right away, but one of the reasons I stopped was sheer boredom. I just could no longer read st stories that were, had the same narrative arc of an antebellum, you know, good life, and then suddenly 33, the same figures, names, characters, places would come over and over and over. And how many stories can you read about uh, a good-natured family that ends up on a train, ends up in a hellish camp? Even though it's completely historically accurate, at one point, you've got to try to tell it in a different way, do different things with it. So that's what I'm trying in, uh, in the novel. I, I'd like to leave some time for questions. Yes. And I'm just going to ask one more. Uh, it's quite a change from uh, your project in the Holocaust. Um, you spoke last night of your pro what you're doing, your book club of two with mm. the Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Um, and for those of you who weren't there, uh, Jan has been sending every two weeks... Uh, a book, 200 pages or, or under that, and um, to the Prime Minister, to of, the Canada. Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, and each uh, each novel or play or or collection of poetry is accompanied by a letter which introduces the work, and these letters are 
They're very amusing, <laughs> very funny. And uh, the link is on the festival website, and I encourage you to go there. But the title, the, uh, the address is uh, www.whatisstephenharper, all one word, whatisstephenharperreading.ca. Or dot com. Dot com as well? Yeah, I got both. Okay. Um, I, I, go look at it. But just to, let's say there's a general election comes up, and uh, you receive on official letterhead, Sussex Drive, um, you receive a handwritten letter, handwritten, and it says, Dear Mr. Martell, would have written earlier, but I've been super busy. <laughs> I just love the books. <laughs> They have changed my life. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. And then, P.S., vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and another way, getting back to Mary Gordon at the beginning of the festival, can, can literature, fiction change people? I think it can. You're actually, it's a very deep question you're asking, is what does art do? Um, well, one can't argue that art makes a person better. Because that were the case, the Nazis, for example, who yes. claimed to love music and love art, would be better than what they were. And I think it, the answer to that question goes to what I said about how art, in fact, is not moral but testimonial. So you read art, you can read art that reflects any point of view that you want. Um, so I, I don't think art makes us better. What it does do, however, and its effect is very subtle, is increase our experience of life. You read a book, you've lived an extra life. The life of those characters that that author has, has uh, brought to life. So you read ten books, you've had one extra life of a cat. You live longer than a cat. So it increases. So you read a novel, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, set in Korea in the 14th century. Or here, example, Shogun. Remember 30 years, yeah. James Clavel Shogun was a massive success. After that, a whole slew of people, a whole generation of people knew a lot more about medieval Japan. Who would think? Well, because of that, if you have more experience of life, you vicariously acquire experience of evil and good, of forgiveness and anger, and, and that hopefully will give you a greater basis to draw upon when you yourself are challenged. Mm -hmm. So I find people who don't read fiction, don't read art, tend to be more narrow in their responses to life. They cling to a few mm -hmm. things and they are narrower. So I, I think by living life, in a sense, it's kind of like traveling. It's imaginative traveling. It increases your experience of life. But it depends how you read things, of course, too. So that's why the, the, the project with the Prime Minister is... It's kind of a dodgy one. I have been accused of being elitist, mm -hmm. of who am I to tell them what to read, all of which is fair. It's not for me to tell anyone what they should read. But my defense for, in this case is once someone has power over, to, over me, if I'm allowed to ask about his finances, you know, where are your investments, Mr. Prime Minister? Have you paid your taxes? Which I would never ask of you or anyone here. It's not even my business. But if you had power over me, yes, I would be entitled. To, have you cheated on your taxes? I think at that point, if someone has power over me, to some extent, yes, their imagination is accountable to me. Because if mm. Stephen Harper has not read any of the books that I've sent him so far, which is 27, or books like it, like it, if he has read no fiction whatsoever, my question is, how does he know anything about life? How does he experience life? Does he only trust what he has literally seen with his eyes? The few books of nonfiction, you know, political history or political he's read and what he sees on television, is that the only way he's acquired his experience of life? Is um, that a rhetorical question? It's, Sorry. It's, it, <laughs> I, I wonder that. And if he, ha if he hasn't that experience, then I'm afraid it's scary that he should have power over me. We, we just have very little time, maybe for yeah, one questions? or two questions. Yep, absolutely. So whoever... Hey, it's Chad again. I'm going to reiterate some of the questions asked of Jan Martel by the audience, who weren't miked. Over there in, the, in blue... What you are trying to do with your new book coming out is bring new life to a historical event by telling it in a new way. But people reading the book aren't going to know that necessarily. Do you have any fear that people are just going to see it and say, oh, that's just another Holocaust book, and not buy it? Um, well, the essay explicitly discusses the Holocaust and representations of it. Now, if my editor... My publishers don't want to do this. They just want to publish the novel. They're afraid the essay will weigh down the novel. But if it just comes out as a novel... 
That's fine. You, don't, you can't hit people on the head. I mean, the novel should, in the reading of it, be fairly clear that it's dealing with a momentous event. Now, is it explicitly clear that it's the Holocaust, the massacre of the Jews, as opposed to the massacre of the uh, uh, Tutsis uh, in Rwanda or the massacre of the Armenians by the Turks? No. Um, in my mind, it's the Holocaust, but if someone takes it as a, uh, as a discussion of another mass murder, so be it. There, were, there was someone else in blue with a head. Yes, go ahead. Maybe a reason why most interpretations of the Holocaust are so realistic is because the almost unspeakable evil of the Holocaust might not be fully captured with language? Yeah, that, but that's inevitable. Language and experience, we delude ourselves at la- any, the most banal experience cannot be fully captured by language, let alone momentous ones. Language is a representation of a reality that will always go beyond it. So it's not just the Holocaust that is beyond representation in that sense, but war, disease, death, aging. Um, We have no choice but to try to represent it. Even the historical realist one, even Primo Levi was just one man, one history. That's all we got. It's a peephole onto something that if we don't have that peephole, it's vanished, it's gone. So we have to represent it hoping that we somehow get to the essence of it. Now, of course, we won't get the full reality, nor would we want it, frankly, because pa- the time is always passing. It's a, it's a river rushing by. Um, what we need are representations that get to its essence. And the standard ones we get do do that. But as I said, they, 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 they hit the nail so hard in, in the same fashion um, that I think there's a level of distortion taking place because of that. There's a certain fatigue setting in. What the young man asked before, in my afraid people are going to say, oh, Holocaust, look, that's exactly what happens with Holocaust fiction now. Periodically, books, Holocaust books I've noticed are either completely obscure, you never heard of them, or they're big bestsellers. So recently, a few years ago, there was a French one, Suite Française, which isn't really a Holocaust one, which just happened to have died in the Holocaust. Um, a few years ago, I Shall Bear Witness was sort of big. Uh, that's, sorry, that's, that's a diary. But they either make it big, like Life is Beautiful, or The Piano Man, was that what it was called, the Polanski book? Uh, they make it big or they vanish. The Pianist. Uh, pianist, yeah, pianist. by Polanski. Um, um, I just blanked out why I was saying that, sorry. Um, anyway, sorry, maybe I'll come back to it, sorry. Um, um, I don't know if we want to end on that, but... Well, one more know. question. Let's one more question. Share your note, maybe. <laughs> yes, you. You bring up the subject of three religions. Do you cast this in any way the way Samuel Huntington does, referring to the clash of civilizations? If you want to hate someone, you can find any number of excuses. Um, So I think Osama bin Laden is not a Muslim. He's just a man who hates, and he uses Islam as his tool. Um, There's nothing in the Koran that calls for the killing of innocents, nothing. Just as there's nothing in the Bible that calls for the killing of innocents. These are people who kidnap texts that are, um, that are certainly not neutral, but uh, are not texts that call for the doing of evil. I don't think it's a clash of religions, therefore. Clash of civilizations. Yes, that sounds too, too grand. I think the reality is more mundane. You know, one thing I've discovered in all my travels is this planet is so big, and the, the electronic technology gives us the illusion that it's a global village. It's not. And I'll give you one, in my experience, one tiny little experience of that. When I went to Israel, Israel's all over the news, all the time. We all, those of us who read newspapers or are news junkies, we feel a great familiarity with Israel, don't we? We feel we know the characters, the settings, the geography, the events, and all that. But the, the essential is missing. And you only get that when you go there. When you start smelling the Israeli air, walking its streets, seeing the people... That social dynamic that you can only get when you're there in reality, then you start understanding where they're coming from, where they're going. So it's only being there that you can really get the experience of things. So Clash of Civilizations sounds too much like a chessboard, I feel. I think it's a more mundane, subtle, uncontrollable reality. Um, Thank you very much for coming. (laughs) And thank you, Otto. Thank you, Otto. It's a pleasure. 
Merci to the brilliant Jan Martel and to his assiduous interviewer, Otto Salas. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us reviews to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from our archives.